Welcome to a special episode of the Vegas Gang Podcast for February 10th, 2011. Let me go around the table and introduce the guys. We've got Mr. Jeff Simpson, author of the Simpson on Vegas column on Two-Way Hard 3. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Hunter. Chuck Monster from VegasTripping.com. Hey, Chuck. Hey, Hunter. Dr. Dave Schwartz from UNLV's Center for Gaming Research. Hey, Dave. Hi there. Uh, my name's Hunter Hilligus. I'm at RateVegas.com. And we have a special guest today. Deryder Butler is the Executive Vice President of Architecture at Wind Design and Development. Uh, Deryder, thanks a lot for being here. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. Um, We're just going to jump in with some questions, if that's okay with you. Uh, What I'm hoping is, right off the top, can you remind us how long you've been working with Steve Wynn and what was the first project you did together? Okay. Um, I joined the company uh, working for uh, the Wynn organization, which was actually at the time Golden Nugget. Um, and I, um, I'm from the East Coast, Washington, D.C., but I was working in Philadelphia and uh, joined uh, the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City uh, in 1982. So that makes uh, me with the company uh, almost 29 years. Wow. So quite a while. And uh, initially I was working on various remodel projects in Atlantic City, uh, at the Golden Nugget there, and, uh, you know, restaurants, retail, remodeling. There's a uh, constant remodeling and freshening of public areas and even back-of-house spaces uh, in the organization. That's just a part of the corporate culture. Um, but my first major project was uh, actually in Las Vegas, and I was uh, tasked with um, creating the drawings for the Golden Nugget expansion, which at the time, uh, the Golden Nugget was just a one-block facility, and uh, for those of you who have been local long enough, um, we closed off uh, the, the street between the Gold Nugget and what was at the time a uh, parking garage. And um, the parking garage still exists, but on the adjacent parcel behind it, we built the Gold Nugget Tower, which we called uh, Tower 3 and 4. There's two uh, white towers there. And then across from the street from that, we built uh, a self-park garage. So those are, that was my first major project in Las Vegas, and I actually drew it uh, living in Atlantic City oh, wow. um, and was flying back and forth approximately once a month or so, keeping up with the project. Wow. And then, then since then, obviously, you know, Mirage Resorts went on to do several other large projects in Las Vegas and then you know work in, um, in Mississippi and, and elsewhere. And then now you're at Wind Design and Development. Um, I'm I'm curious. I, I believe that you're also a principal in your own firm, um, Butler Ashworth. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, Butler Ashworth was formed in the year 2000, and it's uh, a part of a part of the um, the um, Nevada state law requires an architectural firm to be um, non. Um, uh, well, actually, to be owned by architects. You I can't see. just be any company and start an architectural firm. So uh, in that regard, I sort of wear two hats. I'm the president of Butler Ashworth Architecture, which is a um, a company that is contracted to uh, Wynn Resorts to provide architectural services. And in in some of the projects that we prepare documents for, we're actually the architect of record, and those are produced under Butler Ashworth Architects. I see. For Wynn Resorts, when we're not the architect of record, we, um, we're actually Wynn Design and create all of the design and the design documents for Wynn Resorts. So at this point, do you do any non-Wynn work, or is that just a function of the legal requirement? Uh, only only Wynn Resorts work. Okay. And that's part of the agreement with Butler Ashworth. Ah, I see. Um, so on t- today was actually earnings day for Wynn Resorts, and the, the earnings call just ended. And I guess first we should say congratulations because the company did quite well. Um, but part of the call was devoted to discussion of the project coming up in Kotai. And I believe that on the call, Mr. Wynn indicated that the designs at this point were done and that you guys were starting to – Think about starting construction whenever the government there allows it, and I think he was hoping to target April. Um, there's, you know, he has described the building today and in the past as like nothing anyone else has ever done. 
Chuck, I know you had spoken recently to Roger Thomas about some of the interior stuff at Kotai. Can you tell us what Roger told you? And uh, and then I'm curious what, uh, what Derider, if you have any comments that you can share with us about Kotai. So, Chuck, what, do you, what did Roger tell you? Sure, I'm going to apologize. <laughs> I've got the, I've got a guest dog here, and uh, she just showed up, and there's there's a fight going on. So there might be a little barking. Uh, speaking of barking, I, uh, Deroyer, thank you for joining us. Um, I, I met with Roger Thomas about two two or so months ago, and I asked him uh, what he was going to do for for Kotai, and he said that he was really very much at the beginning of developing the design language. Uh, so I guess he was deciding between what types of tassels and uh, what, whether or not they were going to, you know, what the carpet was going to be colored anyway. Uh, and he mentioned to me that, uh, that the, the building itself would be a signature, iconic, curved building, and that Mr. Wynn had told him to concentrate on vistas. And... In thinking about that space, uh, Kotai, uh, the vistas right there at the wind plot, I believe, are of a uh, airport to the uh, to the northeast and to the southeast. There is a, uh, a sewage water treatment plant and the Macau Dome. I'm curious if you could elaborate on uh, some of what Roger said and how the Kotai landmass, as as you've encountered it. Uh, has uh, informed your architectural decisions of the Kotai property. Okay. Um, well, I guess um, I, you know, I can't really speak exactly to what Roger may have said because uh, obviously I wasn't there. But um, uh, my primary role in the company is I do the preliminary planning, uh, starting from a site and developing it from the point of not only its physical access points but also also its. Uh, visual perception, you know, from its surrounding areas. And uh, so we've gone through uh, numerous designs, and I can't, I'm not exactly sure where we were two months ago, but uh, the project has evolved to take advantage of its proximity to um, the City of Dreams project, which is directly across the street uh, to its, um, that would be sort of northwest. And on the opposite corner, uh, slightly just due west, is the site for the future MGM. Now, between the MGM and uh, the City of Dreams projects, there's a sort of a major boulevard between those two, uh, which terminate at the Venetian, which uh, we're not exactly on what would be considered the Kotai Strip, similar to what you would call the Las Vegas Strip. We're actually off of the uh, Kotai Strip, but there is this avenue between uh, the MGM and I think what they're calling parcel five and six. Um, and then on the opposite side of that road is uh, City of Dreams, which terminate at, at uh, Venetian. So we're pretty much centered on this boulevard so that we have both visual proximity and convenient access to all three of those properties, City of MGM and uh, Venetian. On the back side, which you're correct where you place the airport, um, is a view out to the South China Sea. And you can see the airport runway. So on the approach uh, in landing into the Macau International Airport, uh, people on that side of the plane would see the wind project uh, from the opposite side of where Venetian would see it from. Gotcha. So I've orientated the building to take advantage of its uh, prominence as a sort of like a standalone on its site, but it's also in the foreground before you would see MGM, City of Dreams, and Venetian. I'm I'm curious with regards to Kotai. Um, obviously, that a lot of that land is reclaimed land. Um, what what kind of challenges do you run into as you're uh, preparing the site to for a massive project like this? Uh, well, that's an interesting question because uh, when I first uh, was over in uh, Macau, uh, probably two years ago. Uh, they asked me to go and look at the site and start to get a feel for its surroundings and proximity to adjacent properties and, and buildings and things. And I, I got there, and I was surprised to find out that three-quarters of the site was still the ocean. <laughs> um, they uh, were just in the process of starting the landfill at that time, 
and um, I've you know been sort of keeping an eye on it, and it's a lot of uh, construction debris uh, that they've just sort of dumped into the ocean. They put a layer of dirt over it, and uh, I guess it settles naturally over a period of time. Uh, and some of the preliminary uh, geotechnical borings that I've been looking at uh, from we haven't really been allowed to start on this site yet, but the immediately adjacent sites for um, City of Dreams, we have date on that. We have the MGM, uh, the, uh, I'm not sure if MGM has started, but we have Venetian data. And uh, there's somewhere between 120 to 100 to about 200 feet of silt that's below this uh, landfill that was dumped on top of it. And uh, that does present quite a few challenges because silt is... Um, expansive and it has the ability to move sideways laterally when uh, subject to, to, to uh, you know, building type loads. So the, the common um, approach to building a stable building on that type of uh, foundation is that you pretty much have to pile everything. You drill piles down uh, till you reach a, a bedrock of some sort that has capacity to support the weight of the building. Mm -hmm. And that's how all the other buildings there have been done. Any idea how deep we're talking about? I'm just curious. Um, my estimate so far, and that's just my personal guess at this point, is probably averaging about 180 feet. Okay. Um, moving away from Kotai for a minute, uh, I'm curious about kind of some of the ways that the company's design apparatus works. Um, specifically, it's my understanding that when design and development is split into multiple units, such as architecture and interior design, so I'm curious how closely you would work with someone like Roger Thomas on the design side, and at what stage does is, is it a is it a transition where your your involvement starts to decrease and his ramps up? Is it simultaneous? Kind of give us a sense for how that process works. Okay, um, well, when confronted with a project, uh, typically I get sort of like a blank site. And I usually take the first run at it. I'll lay out a building. Um, I need to, you know, with a little bit of input from the operational group as, you know, to determine, um, you know, how many rooms should this project be? How many restaurants? Um, there might be limitations on a tower, you know, like what we would call an FAA limit in China. There's, it's a different organization, but it's regulated the same way. There's a limit to how tall you can build adjacent to an airport. Um, so I would take the first run at it, both laying out a building, a tower, um, site access, where the services would come in at, where the public perception would be, where the, you know, the grand statement for the public's arrival. And um, I would start to sit with, you know, just little loose freehand sketchy cartoons and sit with Mr. Wynn initially. And uh, we'll sort of throw ideas back and forth, and I'll continue to refine them. And as the thing starts to gel, um, I have a staff of uh, CAD people, architects, and uh, we start to put the drawing actually in hard line in the computer. And then it starts to really take on shapes, and we, you know, we constantly go back through and revisit things, and, and rarely does that initial design scheme survive. It's <laughs> usually a starting point, and um, the building evolves substantially over a period of time. Uh, periodically, Roger does participate in some of those um, early sessions, but Basic, basically, building planning is sort of my role, and um, Roger does have input there because um, he. There are certain things that you know, and and you know, again, I've, having been here for the 29 years, I've worked with Roger throughout all this time. So, um, when you work with someone that long, you kind of become to know what they're looking for and how they would perceive things. So, there's a lot of the pre-planning that I would do that integrates what I anticipate Roger would like to see. Mm -hmm. So it becomes sort of like a uh, combined process here between initially Steve and I, and then we integrate Roger into the process. And as the building materializes and things start to stabilize, uh, we would engage um, others in the organization, operational people, uh, and even uh, staff to support us in developing the plans further. Okay. I mean, I, there's definitely a, a traditional narrative regarding um, Wynn and his properties that he is very involved with the design and that it, uh, unlike a lot of other operators, you know, he's, he's more than just the business head of the company, but he also ha is, is, um, you know, is very influential when it comes to the design. Is that an accurate portrayal of the process? Yes, 100%. He's intimately involved with every aspect of the building's design, its layout, its um, 
physical properties, it finishes, um, even to the level of uh, menu selection at the tail end and uniforms, he's involved in everything along the entire path. Well, that's, <clears throat> well, that's good to hear. Um, I'm, I'm curious, I, I always love to hear about challenges that come up when you're, when you're designing a project like uh, Win Las Vegas or Encore. Um, I'm curious if there are any specific stories or issues that you can think of that may have come up during one of those projects where, uh, you know, some kind of challenge came up that you had to um, work around or something that was unexpected that needed to be to be dealt with. I'm just anything like that that you can think of. Well, interestingly enough, every project is is a challenge, and I think just beyond the, the basic challenges of, well, how do you get 5 million square feet to integrate, you know, seamlessly, um, you know, operationally from the public standpoint, all those aspects have to be considered. But some of the, some of the maybe not so obvious challenges are we've sort of prided ourselves and because we've been a team together for so long that we believe that we have a, a, a huge learning experience from every project. And we, we take all of those learning experiences and combine them into the next project because our, our primary challenge is that we don't duplicate what we've done before and we have to exceed what we've done before. So, you know, we thought that we sort of hit the ball out of the park when we did Bellagio, which, you know, in its concept was a, a hotel resort designed uh, so that no one would ever be able to duplicate it or no one would be brave enough to try to uh, outdo it or anything like that. And um, as you're aware, um, you know, uh, Mirage Resorts was purchased by MGM, uh, MGM International, I guess they're called now. And um, when Mr. Wynn acquired the Desert Inn, he took a core group of people with him, myself, Roger Thomas, Mark Shore, you know, a small group of people, maybe 20 or 30 people, I'm not exactly sure about how many, but a very small group out of the entire organization. And we moved over to the Desert Inn and set up shop in what was then the Wimbledon Tower. And uh, the property was still operating as a casino, but part of his deal was to close it. Um, and uh, we went through various design schemes of how to renovate the Desert Inn and make it functional and you know, bring it up to, up to par, competitive with other facilities in town. And we early on concluded that that was virtually impossible. It was just uh, the master planning of it did not lend itself to become a, com a competitive facility, no matter how much we spent on it. So that great challenge was, okay, well, we built Bellagio. We believed at the time it was the greatest, you know, resort facility ever built. And now, how do we outdo that? That's a pretty stiff challenge. Yeah. Um, you know, and we had spent the last five years building something that nobody could duplicate or exceed. And here we are trying to now figure out how to do that. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a testament to the fact that Bellagio is still one of the top grossing and most popular properties in the city, even since it, you know, even how long it's been since it opened in, I guess, 98. Um, I'm curious, it's my understanding that at the, in the Encore Las Vegas project, that the, the moving walls that you see in the Switch restaurant weren't actually part of the original design and construction had already started when that change was made. Is that true? And was that a significant challenge to work that in? Yes, um, it is true. Um, what we did is, you know, in every one of our properties, in, in, especially in recent times, we've tried to create some uh, attraction that becomes a must-see component of the project, that everybody who comes to Vegas, if you can only see five places, which are the top five you've got to see? Or if you're only here for a shorter time, which are the top three you've got to see? So, you know, when was the mountain? And um, you probably are well aware of most of the design principles behind that. We tried to integrate it from the inside out instead of the outside in, which we had done at Bellagio. And Encore, as a sister property to Wynn, was a little bit more remote from the population base, which was predominantly to its south, or at least the population that we wanted to attract. Right. And we didn't want it to appear as an annex. So we, the idea was we built a better guest room, which I think uh, if you've stayed at Encore versus Wind, the, the regular rooms and even the suites are substantially better than the ones we opened Wind with. Right. And uh, But we still were missing some sort of, an attraction, you know, what is it that somebody has to come here to see um, that would bring them from other properties 
And, uh, you know, those ideas sometimes come a little bit late in the game. It takes a, a lot of time and energy to think of some things that are unique like that that uh, would become attraction. So we concluded that a, a morphing restaurant would be an attraction. And we put it in the atrium right next to the, uh, the main port de share off of Las Vegas Boulevard with the notion that this restaurant would draw people in to not only see it from um, the casino in the public areas, but also to dine there because during your dinner, the restaurant completely transformed itself, you know, twice or three times, actually three different scenes um, while you're having dinner. And uh, it was popular originally, and I wouldn't say that it was a failure, but we, it wasn't, the, it wasn't anywhere near as, an, as big of an attraction as, say, the Fountains of Bellagio. Right. Or even the mountain at, at Wynn or the pirate ship at Treasure Island. So um, that idea came about a little bit late. It wasn't disastrous to the project. It didn't delay our opening or anything, but we did have to do some structural modifications because those walls are about um, 16 feet high, and there's one that goes in the attic space above the restaurant, and that steel hadn't been placed yet. But the 16-foot wall that goes into the floor, the floors below had already been poured. (laughs) <laughs> so we actually had to saw cut some concrete and do a little bit of demolition to be able to create those slots that the walls could drop into. That yeah, it's funny. Someone had told me that story, and I was I was wondering if that was the case. Um, I, I I have heard from several people that you are the master of um, not only you know uh, as one of one of your design talents is creating hyper-efficient back-of-house spaces, which, you know, is something the public never sees but is critical to um, keep the well-lubricated machine of the resort running. Um, I'm curious, in your design process, how much of the time do you think is spent on public-facing and parts of the building the public will use versus uh, back-of-house and those kinds of considerations? Um, well, I would say as a percentage of my design effort, I'll, I'll, call, I'll refine it to that kind of a statement, I would say probably uh, 35 or 40% would be dedicated to the back-of-house function. Um, Roger Thomas, on the other hand, who does the interior finishes for the public areas, his would be heavily tilted towards the public area. Right. Uh, he would have you know, a much, much smaller ratio of his percentage of effort in the uh, back-of-house area, but... Uh, you're right. It, it, it's you know the success of a project is not only to the public and their perception, but it's also to how f- efficiently you can operate and distribute materials and you know trash out, linen in, uh, warehousing for the distribution to the various restaurants, and uh, another very very important um, aspect of our uh, resort design relates to making the employees happy. We believe that if the employees are happy in their work environment, that that sort of is conveyed to the customer. And that's very important. We, we build very, very fancy, um, you know, like staff dining facilities. They're as nice as our restaurants. And more than that, we make everything very convenient. The building shouldn't be uh, an impediment to a person being able to do their job, it should be there and be conducive to the job that they're trying to perform. So everything from where they enter the building to having the things that they need right there, we put staff dining, we put uniform issue, we put bathrooms, uh, you know, just past the security checkpoint. Those things come in a natural flow so that employee who arrives to work comes in the door, he checks through, he he clocks in, he has his bathroom facility available, he has his uniform change issue, he has the restaurant right there, and then it's convenient to his workstation, whether it's, uh, whether it's a maid going up in the tower or whether it's uh, you know, uh, engineering going to their workshop. Right. We try to make the building ultra convenient to the employees as well. Um, it seems to a layman like me, it seems like building an environment like a casino where you've got large expanses of public area, sometimes a gaming floor of a hundred thousand square feet plus, um, you would have some specific challenges as it relates to emergency exits, life safety, that kind of thing, especially you have to meet county and perhaps state building codes. Um, do you guys, are, are those real challenges that you have to get creative and finding ways to make all that work? Uh, yeah, those are huge challenges, but um, unfortunately, they don't actually lead the parade. Um, the 
the primary um, criteria is um, is to the public. It's the presentation of the facility. It's the arrival statement. It's the the big ta-da when they come in. Uh, those are the most important things, and we develop the building around a number of parameters that relate specifically to that. And uh, you know, once the building really settles in and materializes, and this is you know this is we're on the right horse now. Um, then I have to come back and solve a lot of those problems, and they're not usually easy problems because of, you know, building codes dictate length of travel, um, access requirements, you know, wall ratings. Um, all of our casinos, all of our casino designs are um, heavily based upon concentrating energy, and we surround the casino with activities and things that relate to even if you're not a, a gambling person but you're still in that central hub of energy. And um, that makes all of the things, you know, the nasty things like exit corridors and emergency exit stairs and mechanical shafts and all those things are secondary but vital. Right. And they have to be worked in um, after the public criteria has been met. And then the other layer on that is still making everything ultra convenient for services. Right. It just seems like doing, you know, that the uh, number of pieces and interested parties, it seems like it's, you know, quite a jigsaw puzzle to make that kind of thing work. Um, I'm curious if you ever go back and walk any of the properties that you were designed, that you were involved with that, uh, that you're not, uh, that are now owned by another company. I mean, MGM Resorts now owns Bellagio Mirage and Treasure Island, or I guess not Treasure Island, but Bellagio Mirage. Um, and in the case of Bellagio, they added the Spa Tower addition after the merger was complete. Um, do you ever go back and see how those things are looking these days? Is that does that is that an interest to you at all? Uh, it does interest me, and um, you know, I, I mean, I thought Bellagio was a fantastic hotel, and even the Spa Tower addition. Um, we started working on that before I left the company and uh, went to work with uh, Steve at the Desert Inn. But um, you know. Um, Sometimes it's a little bit disheartening for me because it takes, um, you know, it takes about five years roughly to design one of these things, to design and build it. Mm -hmm. And there's two years up front in the design process, and there are so many concepts and things that we put into the project that obviously we as the inside circle know about as to why things are where they are and why they're seen the way they're seen. And um, when it's turned over to a different owner and they don't understand those initial design principles, they make modifications, and sometimes they're counterproductive to the original design. And it's a little bit, uh, a little bit disheartening that you walk in and, and you see things that are just completely out of context or out of texture with the original design, and you, you know, I just sort of hold my head and said, oh, no, they didn't <laughs> understand. <laughs> I'm sure that happens and, uh, a lot. <laughs> It's unfortunate, you know, um, you know, Mirage was designed as a South Seas resort. And, um, you know, that's a little bit contrary to, you know, what you would expect in the desert, but then it's called the Mirage. It's something that you don't expect to see there. Go in there today, uh, they've remodeled things, and the things that they've added don't really meld with the original design theme. And then right. on top of that, by us having a wind design as an in-house entity and the continuity of the people who work here, we understand the philosophy of the original building. And when we remodel something, we design it with that same philosophy in mind so that it's, it's blended together. Um, whereas the other companies seem to use uh, you know, outside designers who are most popular at the time. Right. And you'll get 12 designers in... 12 spaces and there'll be no continuity whatsoever between the various spaces and you get a hodgepodge. So, uh, uh, you know, maybe that's okay to the public. Maybe they're not sensitive to that and, and, you know, maybe they don't care, but you know, to us, you know, we put our heart and soul in these projects and they're, they have a, a consistent theme of some sort. And, uh, it's a little bit frustrating when you go back and see this been completely shot out of the water. I, I'm curious, um, you know, when Mirage existed, there, the, I believe the uh, sort of um, equivalent of wind design was Atlantia, is that correct? Um, yes. Did that get disbanded when the merger took place? Um, or does that still exist in any form? Do you know? 
you know, I'm not sure. I believe it still exists, but I believe it was subdivided into two organizations. They had the uh, Atlantia Design, and I, you know, I'm really not, I'm really not knowledgeable enough to say that you could really quote me on this, but I believe Atlantia Design survived the merger, and they maintained or did the remodeling uh, aspect of the various properties, the Mirage, Treasure Island, Gold Nugget. I think eventually they worked a little bit into MGM. And then they created a secondary group, which was dedicated purely to city center. Right. And I don't know. I, I believe that they're still in existence in some form, but I'm not sure who's there and what they do. Um, I'm curious if you have a favorite project that you've worked on. And I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if I get an answer like, they're all my babies. They're like my children. I can't decide. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm sure that there are highlights of each property certain things that you were maybe especially proud of or that for whatever reason just really stick with you i'm curious if there if if you can share any of those with us well um interestingly enough i think of, of all of the guest rooms that we've done and uh that's what the history of you know my participation in the company for the last 29 years the best guest room that we've ever done is in um encore macau and I stayed there recently, and I was just so impressed, again, and reminded of how great that room is. It's, it's really the best room we've ever done. Um, so that's, that's a real statement that, you know, boy, because we've done a lot of, I think, nice rooms. And sure. I ran it to um, uh, someone I used to work for who originally interviewed me when I, was, uh, when I was leaving the company I worked for in Philadelphia. This would be in 1982. Uh, he interviewed me, and I recently ran into him at the hotel in in our Macau uh, Encore Hotel in Macau, and uh, he was staying there. And I said, "Why are you staying here?" Because he's he's done hotels all over the world. He said, "D, this is the best hotel you guys have ever done. It's the best room I've ever stayed in." Wow. And I said, "It's funny you say that because I believe that to be true. Also, I have the same sentiment. So that's our, I think, our best hotel room." Uh, as far as a, a big project, um, of course, I like Wynn and Encore, and I like Wynn Macau. Um, as far as grandeur, I think Bellagio still holds the, the, the lead there. It's just such an, uh, uh, a fantastic statement when you approach it, when you're you know, um, standing out on the sidewalk watching mm -hmm. the fountain show. Right. It, it's a pretty amazing hotel even today. Um, I think on the skyline, I think the Wynn and Encore – Las Vegas combination are the prettiest buildings on the high rise. You know, like say you're landing at McCarran Airport or sure. out in the West Valley or something like that. Um, all of them present huge challenges, and each one is completely different from the other. You can only rely on your learning experiences from the previous ones on uh, on how to deal with the things you encounter on the next one. I'm I'm curious about. City Center. Now, City Center brought in a bunch of big name architects. I'm wondering if you've been over there, um, if you have any opinions on what they've done in terms of architecture, um, just your thoughts on that complex. Well, I haven't really spent time there, and I usually try to see all the other works in town uh, just to be familiar with what competitors are doing. And um, I haven't really gotten that favorable an impression of City Center. I know it's a, a massive project and a huge undertaking. And in my opinion, and I'm going to limit it to my opinion, um, the notion of having five architects, especially five very prominent and well-known architectural firms involved, I think there's got to be a certain level of ego between them. Mm -hmm. And each one is sort of competing as a part you know, for their little piece of the whole. And that doesn't necessarily lend itself to, um, you know, friendly exchanges of, of design issues that right. affect each other. And I think that it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit disjointed. I, you know, I was in the crystals and I was there doing their initial opening. I was trying to get into Aria and they said, well, you have to go outside there and then walk up the sidewalk. <laughs> I'm like, How could you have a mall that's not integrated to the hotel? Right. You know, that's those those type of issues, you know, I don't know if it was deliberate or accidental, but it just seemed odd to me that they wouldn't have done a better integration job. Um, when we built uh, Win Las Vegas, we didn't know that there was ever going to be any more additions to it. But um, I pre-planned into the design of the garage. I shelled out, 
you know, one bay, one structural bay that could in the future become a promenade connecting to something else to the north. Uh-huh. And I, I carved out uh, several avenues in our convention center, one in the convention center, one near the country club, that could ultimately extend into something if it should be built out into the golf course. And the one leading to Encore you know, allowed us to do a very, what I think at least, is a pretty seamless integration of the two facilities that you barely know you're leaving one going to the other. We actually have a different color scheme, um, red versus brown, but the general you know, feeling of the place and the scheme is very integrated so that you don't really know there's just a little retail mall connecting the two. You you mentioned the golf course, and for for a while there, um, when when the economy was booming, there was real active discussion about doing a significant project on the golf course land. Obviously, since then, the economic situation has changed significantly. Um, do you think, and just in your own opinion, do you think that that golf course project will ever be built as it was envisioned? Um. Well, uh, you know, it's hard to say because the economy, you're right, has really uh, damped, dampened things down to the point where um, even projects that are partially built like Echelon or Fountain Blue uh, don't really make a lot of economic sense right now. The, the economy just isn't able to support, you know, the additional rooms. I, you know, it's been a little bit of a struggle with City Center and then a, a little hiccup with Cosmopolitan for them to open with the quantity of rooms they've opened with. Um, you know, and I think that before any major new development starts here, I would think that Hechelon would start up and maybe Fountain Blue would start up. Mm-hmm. So I would say the golf course is quite a number of years away. Um, it does make sense to do a project uh, or a huge development there eventually because, you know, our golf course, um, I don't know what golf play is per day. I don't, I'm not a golfer, but... My guess is at most there's probably a few hundred people that get to enjoy it. And it's right. a really beautiful golf course. But uh, it's a few hundred people on 150 acres right. in the heart of, you know, one of the most uh, energetic and vibrant cities in the world. And it's surrounded by major convention facilities. I think um, the Wynn and Encore combination have uh, about 200,000 square feet of convention facility. You have the Sands Expo across the street to the south. You have the Palazzo and Venetian, which have uh, uh, extensive convention facilities. And then on the opposite side, you have the Las Vegas Convention Center, which is one of the world's largest convention facilities. So you're surrounded by all these convention facilities. You have the monorail system. You have um, good vehicular access. It's, it's almost a shame to have such a prime piece of land enjoyed and utilized by a few hundred people a day. Right. No, that makes perfect sense. Um, you you just mentioned Fontainebleau. Have you been inside that building? Do you have any idea what its state is? And I'm just curious. You know, you built these beautiful buildings, and then right up the street, there's this looming blue monster that is uh, not completed. Um, any opinions on that? Um, I did go on a tour um, of it, and I actually went with Mr. Wynn, and. Um, we looked at the model. They have a beautiful model in the lobby in the building across the street, and uh, we went and looked at the model rooms. I haven't actually been inside Fountain Blue, but I looked at their model rooms, uh-huh. their guest room models. And um, we were somewhat disappointed in that they had made what we consider classic mistakes in the design of the rooms. And um, we felt that, um, you know, in as the customer expectations are constantly growing. I mean, you know, when Mirage, the volcano opened, it was a huge thing that people would run across the street blindly into traffic and create traffic jams to see a volcano go off. Now it goes off and people barely even notice. So uh, customer expectations have grown, um, I would say, exponentially. And there are certain things that have become common expectations in a guest room. And um, those things were quite absent from the rooms that we saw at Fountain Blue. And even though it was touted as an upscale, you know, uh, first-class, five-star hotel room, it didn't have basic components that we had integrated into the rooms back at Bellagio, which were, you know, Bellagio is a 400-square-foot room. Um, Mirage was a 330-square-foot room. Uh, Win Las Vegas is about a 600-square-foot room. And Encore is uh, about a 700-square-foot room. So, you know, the, the size, not only has the size grown, but things like uh, 
a toilet in a compartment, you know, mm-hmm. in a separate room. Right. Has come to be an expectation in a, in an upper class room. Uh, two sinks, one for the guy and one for the the lady while they're getting dressed. Right. Um, flat screen TVs, you know, things like that are just like expect expected now. I mean, nobody would think that you would build what would be intended to be competitive at the top end of the market, but a second class room. So we were a little disappointed, and many of the things that we saw were not correctable. It's not like you can add another sink or you right. can build a wall around the toilet and make it into a compartment. <laughs> right. Um, some fundamental problems like, you know, a mechanical grill blowing air directly on the bed. That's a real <laughs> customer inconvenience. Wow. If you're laying in bed and the air conditioning comes on, it blows a cold, chilling breeze over you, you're uncomfortable. Wow. And that's where the TV belongs. You don't want to look at a TV off to the side. The TV should be in front at the foot of the bed and the grill should be off somewhere else where it doesn't blow on the bed. Huh. That's really interesting. I, you know, I, I, I think I, like many others, are pretty pessimistic about Fontainebleau, but uh, it's there, so who knows what will happen with it. Um, I, I'm, I'm curious about building technology and what, what might be coming down the line the next, I don't know, 10 or years or even further out. It seems to me like in Las Vegas we've seen a trend to moving towards all-glass curtain wall construction. Um, are there – any next generation materials or technologies that you know of that might change the buildings of tomorrow and the way that they're built and designed? Um, well, to be quite honest, I don't see anything that would really um, overpower current technology on a, on a mass scale. Uh, you know, newer technologies tend to be more expensive. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when we built Bellagio, the, the idea was we wanted a tower that was sympathetic with the low rise. And Mr. Wynn went to see Lake Como and he fell in love with the place and he wanted to, you know, design this beautiful uh, Italianate um, waterfront type property. But there's this nasty thing that happens when you build a big hotel and you got this big tower sticking up there. And there's no tower like that in a place like Lake Como. So, you know, what do you do with that? And we, we took, a, I think, a valiant attempt at creating a tower that was, you know, non-traditional for a village, but yet was sympathetic architecturally and, you know, sort of brought back some of the themes and architectural statements of a, of a romantic village. Um, when we did win, we took the opposite approach. We wanted an iconic structure that would be prominent on the skyline, uh, but at the same time, we didn't want it to compete with the low-rise. We wanted it to more or less disappear. Uh-huh. And... Um, especially at night. Now, to give it some presence, we, we looked at Luxor and we didn't like the fact that it was a big, you know, architectural volume, right. but it was black at night. Right. And so that's why we added the, uh, the, what we call cambric, which is a color name for beige, but we added the cambric banding so that when we uplit the tower, you would see the banding, you know, on the skyline. So it wouldn't just disappear, but it wasn't bold enough or bright enough to compete with the low rise. Uh-huh. So, um, I would. I don't really expect materials to change dramatically enough that it would alter architecture at that level. It really is going to come down to client preference. Do you want a glass building which tends to go away, especially at night? If you use dark glass and don't light it, it's completely gone. Or do you want to use um, something in ethos or plaster or you know? We, I mean, Atlantic City. The the hotel in Atlantic City was made out of white brick, uh, the twenty story tower. So it really comes down to client preference. Um, there is a concern over, you know, economics and durability. Mm-hmm. Um, so glass is, you know, it's uh, it's become quite efficient. We use uh, insulated glass with low E and laminated where necessary, and we've done sound glass at Encore because of potential noise coming from the pool. But you can upgrade glass and make it more efficient from energy and sound and even light transmission, but um, I don't know that there's anything out there that I've seen at least that would say, okay, this is the new material, and our next building is going to be this. Um, moving back to China for a minute, uh, I know you guys have now been working in China. I think the casino opened in um, 2006, and you know, obviously the design preceded that. I'm curious what that process is like in, compared to the United States when it comes to Permits, design, what's allowed, the, all the stuff that you do as you're running up and into construction, what, those, what, what the contrast is like. 
Well, from the that was a, a very interesting challenge for us because obviously there are huge cultural differences. There are uh, different public perception differences. Uh, we went and looked at every casino that existed there and spent some time investigating the marketplace and looking at what else, whatever was there, and basically concluded that the existing casinos there at the time were on par with what we would, I would relate it to something like, let's say, the El Cortez here. Uh-huh. Uh, sort of older, dated, you know, kind of like a grind joint type of place. And that was the standard there. Right. So, but they were packed. They were, there were people at the games there, six people deep, trying to get the money on the table. So we were confronted with this question, do these people here like this type of facility because that's all they have? Or if we built a Las Vegas-style casino with you know the fancy finishes and the beautiful decor and all that stuff, would they appreciate that? And you know, how do we know? There really isn't a way to know. And we sort of like resolved to our basic experience that um, – Humans aspire for better things. Right. No matter where you are in the social strata, you aspire to have the best of this or the best of that or you know the, the nicest wardrobe or the nicest car or the nicest place to live. And we sort of designed to those principles trying to um, tap into that population's aspirations to be in a fancier place than a dumpier place. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know, it was uh, it was a tough call because if you guess wrong, you spent hundreds of millions of dollars to provide something that they don't want. Right. And we took a chance on it. And that was a that was a big gamble, but we designed what we felt the people would appreciate and become an attraction. And uh, fortunately enough, we were successful in that they did appreciate a better facility. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Hunter. Could go I ahead. Ask yeah, go ahead, Jeff. <clears throat> the writer. This is Jeff Simpson. Uh, nice to talk to you again. Um, Hi, Jeff. I, I wanted to ask um, today on the conference call, uh, Mr. Wynn addressed um, sort of the improvements made between um, from Wynn Macau to Encore Macau, and he mentioned what you were just talking about, um, saying that you know the uh, the the operations in Macau sort of have a uh, question that they always ask learning from Lisboa. And you mentioned how when you built Win Macau, you all, even though you built a greatly upgraded place with a lot of, um, a lot of luxury for that market at the time, you did um, include chambering and things inside the property, and including um, the HVAC systems and stuff that would allow um, smaller spaces, which he said that you you guys have found the market there um, is more amenable to. And I'm wondering, um, and then you, when Encore Macau opened, you did even more of that. And I'm, I'm wondering, what are some of the things aside from um, luxury and the preference maybe for, you know, tighter, more intimate spaces, what are some of the other things that about that market that um, you've learned that you will incorporate into um, within Kotai? Well, um, some of the principles that, we, that we've learned, and, and I'll comment to, uh, Hunter asked me earlier, you know, about the switch uh, restaurant walls that impacted the building construction in progress. We went through the same thing with um, our Macau and Encore development in that we discovered that the chambering aspect of the Macau Casino proved to be so popular um, that in the midst of almost completing the Phase 2 Casino, we decided to not open it and tear it apart and rebuild it and develop it with the same chambering effect. And in our corporate culture, that chambering concept in the casino design filtered its way all the way back to Encore Las Vegas because... um, if you look at the timing of everything, when Macau was open, Encore was in design, and Encore Macau hadn't been thought of yet. But during the process of, we were pretty far along with the casino design of Encore and discovered this unique characteristic of popularity in our Macau casino with this chambering effect, and we 
redesigned the Encore Casino midstream, you know, with that chambering effect in mind. So it, it appears that people, well, we know that people like to be around people in spite of the fact that you don't want to walk through a crowded hallway or, you know, a crowded restaurant. If there are two restaurants side by side and one has a line out the door and one is empty, more people are likely to go stand in line than to go and sit in an empty restaurant. Hmm. Because for some reason, people think that if everybody is there, it must be better. It must be good. Let's go there. Now, if you're in a hurry, you got to eat right now, you got to get on a train or a bus or whatever, you might go into the empty restaurant, but more than likely, you're going to go where people are and where they congregate. And that's a part of human energy. Um, we had a place in the early days in the Golden Nugget where we had what was called the Blazing Sevens, and there was a series of slot machines, and the ceiling there was about eight foot high. It was near the bathrooms, but it was a little narrow place. It was very tight and congested, and it was always packed. It was the busiest place in the whole casino because, for some reason, people like that compressed energy of being around people and energy and activity. So that's one of the things that has proven very successful in Macau, and people there... Because of the, you know, the population is so much more dense than it is in the United States, they're actually used to being in those, you know, congested or tighter environments, and they seem to appreciate it. Now, you give them a large guest room, and they love that because it's something that they don't have and they're not used to. Um, so, you know, we have, to, we, we, we have to tailor our design approach to now what we've learned after operating there for almost five years. Uh, it has altered our design, not only in China, but it's also filtered back to the United States, what we've learned there. Do you expect that, um, is there any, are there any details about Win Kotai that um, might excite uh, the listeners of this podcast, you know, in terms of something new and innovative that um, you plan to break out um, at that property? Well, we're going to have uh, a number of attractions. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but we built uh, a tree, a golden tree that comes out sure. of the floor at um, the Phase 2 expansion of Win Macau. Mm -hmm. And we're planning uh, several things, not copying anything we've done before, but we're planning several attractions like that, uh, interactive restaurants. Um, we have a, a large lake on the front of the property with... Um, a different approach to water effects and water fountain design, uh, integrating both the water features and the surrounding landscaping and the tower itself with lighting effects. Um, we, again, we've, we think we're making this building so, cons so customer friendly that it would be um, impossible to resist coming there because it'll be so user-friendly for people to get in and out and experience whatever it is they want to do. Whatever their destination is, it'll be ultra convenient for them. And we find that's a big thing. Uh, we've, um, you know, at some of the, in, in Win Las Vegas, for instance, we discovered that people don't like long walks and quarters. So we, instead of building the suites on top of the tower, like we did at Bellagio and Mirage and Treasure Island, we actually did a vertical stack of suites and the elevators that serve it drop those customers into the exact area where they want to be. They're immediately adjacent to a VIP pool, a VIP check-in, a VIP drop-off, the atrium at the drop-off, the high-limit slot area, the high-limit um, table game area. So it became a little boutique hotel within a boutique hotel. And there are principles like that that we're employing at um, Kotai, which the, the, the upper end of the market, which is the junket, I think if you listened to Mr. Wynn's conference call earlier, he mentioned and talked about the junket operations there a little bit, and we're making this super friendly for the junket customers. Thanks we think very that much. That is, since that's such a large part of the business, and typically over there or traditionally over there, they've been treated sort of like as a necessary evil. Ah. Well, we're actually embracing them, and we're making sure, them... So, such yeah. a big part of the business. Derider, uh, one last 
thing. I remember when right after the hurricanes hit the Mississippi and Louisiana Gulf Coast, um, Beau Rivage was the only property that remained where it was. And uh, Mr. Wynn seemed pretty proud about the way you guys built that property on some very deeply dug pilings. And I just wondered what your thoughts were. Were you involved in that? I presume so. And uh, um, what your thoughts were on that? Uh, yes, I was involved in that. That was uh, one of our projects, and we sort of designed that during the development of Bellagio. So we try to do one at a time, but sometimes the market or opportunities doesn't allow us to focus on one at a time, and we have to do two. Um, but yeah, it was a, that was a very, very complicated project because of its proximity right there on the water and the risk of, of the uh, hurricanes that come in. Um, if you're familiar with the property, they didn't allow gaming on land. Right. So one of the challenges was to build a barge that was on the water to comply with the gaming regulation at the time. We weren't allowed to disturb, you know, like the um, the the sea life, the the you know the um, Gulf bottom there, and um, some of our dry, uh, design principles demanded that the casino be definitely integrated with the rest of the facility in a seamless way. The ones that we visited, I looked at down there, you'd have to go across a gangplank to go from the restaurant complex to the casino. Uh, when the high tide came in, it was a steep ramp up. When the low tide was in, the, it was a steep ramp down. You know, it just didn't feel like one facility. It felt like a barge with gaming on it and a restaurant facility separated. And, uh, Sorry about that, my no phone and I don't know how to answer it without no problem. But anyway, um, so yeah, that was a huge challenge. And what we wound up doing was we designed a barge which was supported on um, pontoons, and there was about a 20-foot cavity uh, airspace between the pontoons, which were partially submerged, and the casino floor plate. And the pontoons were designed to pump in water or pump out water depending on the weight of the casino above. So if there was a lot of people in the casino, that would tend to push the barges down, but the uh, computer-controlled system would pump water out, therefore air in to these pontoons, which would keep the, uh, the casino floor level with the adjacent low-rise. And there was, uh, you know, it was a big, wide place, like 300 feet of open space between the casino on the water and the public areas on land. And during, we were in construction when a smaller hurricane hit, and these, computer, these computers monitor the differential in floor level between the gaming barge and the on-land-based floor, and we had about a total deflection of about three-quarters of an inch maximum during a major hurricane hit. So that's how effectively the design was done to uh, keep the barge perfectly balanced with the land so there was never any differential. And it was completely open. It was only it's like a construction joint in a building. That's how how tight it was. It you know I've I've been, I've been to Bill Ravage and it's definitely definitely stands apart from all of the other uh, casinos in in uh, Biloxi in terms of that. I mean, you really it's very harder. It's far harder to tell when you transition from one space to the overseas space. Um, I have one more question. I know we're running out of time. I have one more question, and then I might give my colleagues uh, one last chance to see if they've got any last thing. But my last question is this. You've been with Wynn and before that Mirage for a long time. Uh, we know that your colleague Roger Thomas almost retired a, a couple of years back. Do you have any plans to retire, or are you uh, going to be around for a while? Um, I anticipate being around for a while. I certainly... Uh wouldn't leave a project midstream, and, uh, you know, Kotai is, uh, if it's true to form, it's a five-year project. If we accelerate it, it's a four-year project, um, but I, I'm certain I'll be uh, here to see it through. After that, you know, it's hard to say. Fair enough. Um, Chuck, Dave, anything uh, you want to add before we go? Yeah, I, I have something. If Mr. Wynn said that the economy had picked up to the extent that he was going to build another property in Las Vegas, but he would be getting a piece of land that he didn't own now, so not the golf course. Is there any piece of land that you'd like to build on? Um, so if you could build on any piece of land in the entire city besides what Wynn owns, which one would you pick? 
Well, uh, you know, if, if I were looking at just a piece of land as, let's say, a developed, I'll, I'll just be a neutral by-party here for a moment. Um, I would think that the frontier would probably offer a substantial potential because of its location in proximity to win an encore and the fashion show mall. Uh, potentially, Echelon may start someday. Um, you know, if you were going to select a piece of property to be an optimum location, you'd want to be in the heart of things because that's, you know, the strongest population base. Uh, there's, um, you know, a lot of cross traffic between properties. People stay at one and they visit the, those immediately surrounding it. So uh, I would think that um, uh, the frontier probably offers the most potential as far as that type of a site from the ones I can see. I, I think, you know, the Tropicana farther south are a little too far away. Mm -hmm. um, anything north of frontier is probably too far away from the heart. Right. Um, Chuck, anything before we go? Yeah, I was curious if uh, DeRoyter could uh, tell us the origins of the chocolate curve. I'm sorry, of what? The origins of the chocolate curve, the origins of the building, the origins of the shape, the curve, the iconic wind building. How exactly? Can you distill exactly okay. how that idea came about? Sure, that's an easy one. Um, basically, architecturally, we like to create buildings that are receptive, that are inviting, like hugging. And you'll, you'll learn more about that as the, as as the Kotai design becomes more prominent. But um, basically, the, the Mirage, which was the first one of those, basically has wings that reach out to the side. So they sort of like beckon a person standing in front to say, come here, I'll give you a hug. It's sort of like an inviting shape. It's, a, it's, a, it's using human natural um, tendencies to be invited to a hug. And um, Mirage has that. It faces the street with that hug. Bellagio has that. It faces the street with a hug. Beau Rivage in Mississippi has the hug. Um, by the way, the Venetian, which came after us, which was also a three-wing tower, they sort of duplicated the notion of a three-wing tower, but because they're on the opposite side of the strip, instead of creating this hug, they stuck their wing out at you, like, you know, sort of like sticking the finger at you. <laughs> so they didn't quite understand the hugging concept because they put it on the site backwards, but never, uh, never beyond that. Um, we knew that when we developed WIN, the population to the south was who we wanted to uh, invite. And that included, obviously, Treasure Island, Mirage, uh, Caesar's Palace, Bellagio. Those were, that's the population base at the time. So we wanted to create this inviting shape, a receptive shape, that sort of faced its way to the south, which is where the population base would see it from. And uh, a soft curb is romantic. It creates energy all by itself. Uh, the swoosh up at the top was very late in the game because I had a terrible problem with the FAA gaining approval to build that additional swoop. Originally, the top was flat, and uh, it sort of terminated with sort of like a crown up there. But meanwhile, I, uh, I engaged a special consultant um, who had been with the FAA for his entire career and engaged him to assist us with developing a strategy and working with the FAA to gain additional height, which allowed me to then to create that swoop up there. But it's uh, basically, it's a beckoning shape, it's receptive, it points to the population base, and uh, we wanted something dramatic on the Las Vegas skyline. Now, the evolution of that is the Encore Macau Tower. It hugs. It hugs a different direction, but it kind of hugs with some different clothes on. Could we possibly infer that maybe that this is a, a sign of what the future hugging towers are going to look like? Uh, no, we're taking the hugging, <laughs> the hugging aspect to a next level. So it's a really a hug. Like it's, a bear hug. A, a, <laughs> a bear, bear hug. <laughs> so using the hugging metaphor, would you say that Aria is a Group hug with people between you? No, you lose the effect with that. Um, it's, uh, it, it's got a third wing sticking out the back, and it's uh, surrounded by competing structures. Some of them slope, some of them tilt, you know, some of them are ovular shaped. It's, it's sort of like, uh, like playing, playing with building blocks and just piling them up, and there is no cohesive effort amongst them to, uh, 
to organize that sort of a feel. That's not a good hug. <laughs> uh, it's it's not an inviting hug. I'll say it like that. <laughs> I. I don't think we can top that. I think that's a great, a great way to end. Um, Director, I want to say thank you. You know, the, the last time I saw Roger Thomas, I had I said that you guys as a group need to do some kind of like a coffee table book of all the design work projects you've done, all the, the stuff that has never seen the light of day, all the sketches, the drawings, the all that stuff. I think it would be fascinating. So I'm just going to plant that in your head as well. So I'll buy one. Someday when you're yeah. uh, not busy with building the next, uh, you know, mega resort, maybe something to think about. Um, but I, yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Okay, you're more than welcome. Thanks very much, Thanks, and Robert. hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Great. Okay, thank you. Take care. Thanks. Okay, bye. That's it for today. Uh, thanks to everybody for being here. Let me go around the table so you can tell people where they can find you. Um, Dr. Dave Schwartz, where can people find you? Uh, gaming.unlv.edu and diescast.com. Mr. Jeff Simpson, where can people track you down? <laughs> that is emblematic of uh, technical. Simpson. <laughs> yes. We're, we're not reading you loud and clear, so I'm going to stand in for Jeff and say, you can find me at the fabulous Two Way Hard 3 blog and also Simpson Las Vegas on Twitter. Um, thanks, Jeff. Uh, Chuck Monster, <laughs> where can people find you? People can find me at hugsarvegas.net. <laughs> hugs, yeah, I, uh, oh, and Jeff's going to come right back, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> hey, welcome back. Sorry, guys. No problem. Um, it's all it, good. It didn't happen mid-show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're gonna, I'm going to see if I can work with you before next time to see if we can figure out what's going on. Um, but that's neither here nor there for the moment. Um, people can find me at ratevegas.com. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend. <laughs>